and welcome on behalf of Mac Avenue Community Church. My name is Jonathan Demers, and I'm pleased to serve as one of the elders here at Mac, and also pleased to continue our Advent series on testimonies of Christ's coming. Two weeks ago, we heard from Pastor Leon about Mary, and last week we heard from Matthew Rojek on Joseph. Today, the focus of my sermon will be the shepherds of Bethlehem. So please go ahead, if you haven't already, and turn to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. So for me, growing up, just about every Christmas, my mom and dad would whip out this infamous 25-question Christmas IQ test for use in a small group or maybe a Bible study or a family gathering. And if my brothers are watching, they've probably already started to chuckle or maybe roll their eyes. And that's because this test is not for the faint-hearted. Most people get about half the questions wrong, even if they think they're really familiar with the Christmas story. Uh, so let me read the instructions and then we can give it a shot. The instructions read like this. Read and answer each question in the order it appears. When the choices are given, read them carefully and then select the best one in accordance with the Bible and authoritative historical documents. Guessing is permitted, but looking up the answers and cheating is not. So with that in mind, let's try out a few of these questions. I'll read the question, which will also be up on the screen, and the multiple choice options. Take a quick look, and then share your answer in the group chat. So let's start with the first question. How many revelatory dreams did Joseph have? A, none. B, one. C, two too many. D, three. Or E, four. Take a moment and see if you can figure out the answer, and then again, try to toss it out there in the group chat. So we got a tip on this last week with Matthew, but there are actually four different dreams that Joseph had. He had the first dream uh, where he was told to go ahead and marry Mary and not divorce her, the dream to flee to Egypt from Herod, the dream to return back from Egypt to his hometown of Nazareth, and then another dream right before then to change course to avoid danger. That's a lot of dreams. Let's try another question. Question number two. Jesus was delivered in a what? A, a stable, B, a manger, C, a cave, D, a barn, or E, unknown. Go ahead and try to figure that out. Again, see if you can put your answer in the group chat. All right, the answer to question number two is E, unknown. While Luke two, chapter two does say that Mary placed Jesus in a manger. As far as where she actually was when she delivered Jesus, that's not really known. A lot of times we portray her as being in some kind of cave or barn, but in fact, it's really common back then in first century Hebrew culture uh, to have a manger in the home and to have animals in or around the home. And more than likely, given the historical and cultural evidence that uh, suggests this, it's most likely that Joseph and Mary were in a house. Uh, but when there was uh, said to be no room, it's not that there literally was no room in the house, but that the guest room itself was fully occupied uh, and that they may have just been in a part of the room uh, that was available for family, just not the hospitality room. Let's go to the third question now, third and last one. So what did the angels sing to the shepherds the night Jesus was born? A, joy to the world, the Lord is come. B, Alleluia. C, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. D, 
Glory to God in the highest. E, hark, the herald angels sing. Or E, none of the above. Go ahead and take a look at the answers and toss yours into the group chat. Okay, once again, the correct answer is E, none of the above. Yes, it does say in Luke chapter 2 that the angels were praising God and saying, but it doesn't actually say that the angels were singing. You don't like it? Take it up with my parents. It's their quiz. Okay, okay. Now, as silly and strained as this quiz may be, I do think it can be helpful in demonstrating just how sentimental our understanding of Christmas really is and how that sentimentality can actually short-circuit a deeper understanding of the true Christmas story. Now, don't get me wrong. I am as sentimental and nostalgic as just about anybody that I know. And I think part of the reason I attach so much emotional weight to key moments in my memory has to do with growing up in a military family. And when you move every three or four years, sentimental memories function like markers on a map. They provide comfort and familiarity. They otherwise just kind of help me organize my life into a story that made sense. And yet when it comes to my identity and faith as a Christian, that temptation towards comfort and familiarity is a dangerous one. And that's why I agree with Stanley Harawas, a professor of theology and ethics at Duke, who has often said to his students that the greatest enemy of Christianity is not atheism, but sentimentality. It's pretty harsh words. What exactly is he getting at? No, Harawas isn't condemning the smell of pine trees or the sound of a crackling fire, or the taste of hot chocolate, or smiles that accompany a good gift given or received. These holiday habits rekindle a sentimentalism that is safe and warm and comforting, and that's mostly harmless in the context of seasonal family traditions. It can be devastating, though, in other situations. Remember, we live in a nation that's built on a rotten foundation of sentimental narratives. The American dream, manifest destiny, that draw their power from a kind of selective nostalgia that way oversimplifies our complex past and saps the truth from our collective memory. Family, the gospel cannot become that kind of story as well. It's not supposed to go down easy. When Christianity becomes sentimental, it can look like it's full of devotion, when in fact, it's just mutated into a kind of self-serving, feel-good religion, wrapped up in cliche and otherwise incompatible with the very device that's supposed to shape our faith, the cross of Christ. Consider that the Apostle Paul describes the message of the cross as complete absurdity, and yet, Paul wants nothing more, not his titles, his heritage, his history, than to know Jesus crucified. May I never boast, Paul says, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For Paul, to follow Jesus is to experience a kind of death that leads to new life. Paul's vision of the Christian faith is cruciform or cross-shaped because Christ's faithfulness was expressed first in his death on the cross and then in our death to the ways of this world as we deny ourselves and carry our crosses. That's not sentimental. Sentimentality soothes our consciences and settles us in. The cross awakens us to the compelling, confrontational reality of Jesus and his kingdom. I believe we are especially susceptible to the danger of sentimentalizing our faith at Christmas, when we are bombarded with Hallmarkian fairy tales about Jesus' birth. 
The true Christmas story is not sweet or sentimental. The arrival of King Jesus is a kingdom-shattering moment, an announcement that the way things have always been are backwards and broken, that a new way is breaking in, and that through it all, God keeps his promises. And if you don't see that confrontation, look at how Jesus' birth catalyzed the wrath of worldly kings. Jesus and his family are forced to flee Herod's murderous violence against the children of Bethlehem and then seek asylum in Egypt, the very place where another ruler had unleashed his own murderous rage against Hebrew children thousands of years earlier. In the end, even after Herod dies, a total of five different Herods go on to persecute Jesus and his church over the next generation. These Herods understood one thing. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. Again, not exactly sentimental. Family, this is why our crucified Messiah is the antidote to all of our sentimental impulses this season. The harsh events surrounding his birth and his life remind us how our Savior shared in our humanity, the author of Hebrews says, and was made like us in every respect. Because he suffered every pain and sorrow from the trials of his early years as a refugee to a life of poverty to his unjust death at the hands of corrupt powers, he's able to help those who suffer. If anyone understood the power of a savior in solidarity with the sorrowful, it was the shepherds of Bethlehem, the focus of today's message. They, like the evil kings who persecuted Jesus, knew that if this baby was Lord, Caesar was not. And yet in their receipt and response to the gospel, they revealed the inauguration of God's kingdom, the collapse of worldly kingdoms, and the truth that the way of the cross will always triumph over the way of the powers. I've organized today's sermon into three parts, the inauguration, the collapse, and the choice. Again, we're going to be focusing on Luke 2, and I invite you to turn there as we pray together. Father, as we gaze upon the nativity scene that has been sentimentalized to us, and as we look upon Bethlehem's outcast shepherds, soften our hearts, open our eyes, and guide us with a gentle rod. Let us not lose sight of this striking irony, a handful of shepherds marginalized by generations of enmity, cast down by the social and religious elite, were chosen by you to break the silence of centuries, herald the Messiah's birth, and inaugurate his kingdom. Humble us, Father. Help us to see that your ways are not ours. Help us to understand that it profits us nothing to gain the world if we have to first forfeit our soul. Give us the grace, Father, to understand that to find our lives, we have to first lose them. Amen. So let's begin with that first section of the sermon, the inauguration. And as we again turn to Luke chapter 2, we will find a compelling glimpse into the kingdom of God and how it is inaugurated through the shepherds in their receipt of and response to the gospel. So Luke's gospel is actually the only one that describes the angel's encounter with the shepherds. That's important for thematic reasons that we'll come back to later, but for now, let's focus on those shepherds for a moment and their cultural and social situation. I'd like to do that by using a portrait from the Italian painter, Gijoran, the Adoration of the Shepherds. Yes, I know, a dusty old Renaissance painting with a pale white Jesus, but give me a chance. I think you'll find this painting compelling. It portrays what the Bible reveals. There's so many details captured in this portrait. It's a classic case study in the beauty of treating art with patience. 
So to the left of the portrait, we see a winding road stretching from the distant mountainous outskirts of Bethlehem all the way to the manger. Gijaran is making it clear. These men don't belong here. They are fringe dwellers, outliers, wild men from the hills deliberately placed beyond society's carefully constructed boundaries. Out of sight and out of mind. And that's consistent with the widely agreed upon historical understanding of first century Hebrew culture. Shepherds were despised. They were second-class citizens, untrustworthy, disallowed from providing testimony in court. And in fairness, this reputational wound was at least partially self-inflicted. Shepherds were often dishonest and thieving. They would lead their herds onto other people's lands and steal its produce. And because they often worked for months without supervision, they were suspected of stealing some of their flocks' increase for their own food and clothing. The Jewish historian Jeremiah went so far as to note that, quote, to buy wool, milk, or a baby goat from a shepherd was forbidden on the assumption that it would have been stolen property. And yet, as is often the case whenever examining social and political marginalization, the dynamics here are much more complex and insidious. Thousands of years before Jesus' birth, during the time of the nomadic Hebrew patriarchs, shepherding was noble. But when the Hebrew people migrated to Egypt, they were confronted by a lifestyle foreign to them, farming. Over the course of 400 years of slavery, the Egyptians prejudiced the Hebrew people's attitude against shepherding. Egyptians considered the Hebrew sheep worthless for food or sacrifice, and their clean-shaven appearance further humiliated the rugged Hebrew shepherds. By the time God's people actually settled into Canaan and had escaped their slavery in Egypt, many Hebrew tribes had chosen a farming lifestyle and left shepherding as a menial task for the laboring class. By the time of the prophets, shepherds were used as symbols of judgment and social isolation. The prophet Amos even went so far as to contrast his former role as a shepherd with his new higher calling as a prophet. And so by the time of Jesus' birth, Shepherding was not just unappealing, it had become socially unacceptable and defined by these cruel stereotypes. And rather than correct this injustice, religious leaders actually exacerbated the situation. The Mishnah, Judaism's record of the oral law, reflects these deep prejudices against shepherds. One passage describes them as incompetent, and another states that no one should feel obligated to rescue a shepherd, even if he had fallen into a pit. Returning to Gijaran's painting, note the location of these lowly shepherds as we now understand them. Just about every other Renaissance-era painter places the Holy Family smack dab in the middle of their nativity compositions, while the lesser characters like the shepherds or the magi or even animals and others get arranged around Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. But not here. Gijaran actually places the shepherds at the center of his frame, kneeling, ragged, and bareheaded before their Messiah, having left all of their sheep behind. They're nowhere to be seen. Notice, too, that Gijaran not only places them at the center of his painting, but in a kind of equilibrium with Mary and Joseph. This shows that all four of them have adopted postures of humility. All four are speechless and spellbound. All four have been visited by angels, and all four recognize that the fragile, helpless child laying between them is unlike any child that's ever been born. This portrait shows how God centers these men in the story of Christ and then welcomes them into the kingdom. Of all the people in the world to be the first to worship Christ, 
It was these outcasts, Bethlehem shepherds, that were called to Christ. Considering the larger context of religious snobbery and class prejudice, God's son stepped forth and handpicked lowly, unpretentious shepherds to first hear the joyous news. It's a boy, and he's the Messiah, I'm sure they heard. While these shepherds have become a mainstay in the church traditions for thousands of years, the religious experts and leaders of that era have completely faded into obscurity, conspicuously absent from the invitation list. Christ himself will go on to identify as the good shepherd who lays down his life for a sheep. As utter outliers, the shepherds' hearts must have leapt to hear the angel's message. Glory to God in the highest, they said, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Even them? Shepherds? Yes, even them. Outcasts no longer. The outsiders have been brought in. The misunderstood have been heard. The strangers have been made welcome at the table of God. There's so much that we can learn from these shepherds and their religious counterparts who are absent that I think is pretty obvious so long as we acknowledge that many of us are far less like these shepherds than we might care to admit at the moment. But allow me to say this. Attempting to shield God from our weaknesses short-circuits God's holy, refining work in our life and in the lives of others. So often, if we're honest, we seek to hide our doubts and fears and spiritual aches and pains from God. We want him and others to see us at our best. And in so doing, we actually miss out on how God can reach into our broken, hypocritical lives because of those very weaknesses and make his strength perfect within us. This understanding should revolutionize the way that we think about ourselves. It should lead us into a deep humility whenever we're celebrated by the cheers of our peers and it should refresh us with hope when we're confronted by our darkest failures. We can begin to learn how, as Paul says, to delight in our weaknesses, our insults, our hardships, our negative perceptions, and our difficulties. For when we are weak, Paul says, then we are strong. Our doubts and fears and shortcomings are not something we should shield from God. They are the very things that God reaches into and works through to transform us into his emissaries and witnesses. And if you don't believe me, just look in verses 15 to 20 at how the shepherds in all their brokenness respond to the hospitality of Christ. They're overjoyed. Look at the verbs in the passage. Going with haste, seeing, knowing, worshiping, making it all known, glorifying and praising God. God's hospitality and promise keeping has transformed these lowly, untrustworthy shepherds into God's very first missionaries. And there's no hint of skepticism in them, no discussion about going to see whether it's true or not. They have become men of faith. And upon seeing the newborn cradled in his mother's arms, they've also become men of action. And again, keep in mind who these people are. They are the least theologically trained, least respected, and in some cases, the least recognized category of person in that day. The odds are stacked against anyone giving them the time of day at all. And yet these shepherds, who gave no lectures or sermons, managed to go about igniting wonder and awe in all who heard them. Their message was simple. We have seen him with our own eyes. We have to let you know. Everything has changed. These shepherds didn't worship God in the abstract. They offered their bodies as living sacrifices. God's strength, transforming weakness, made perfect. 
And that brings us to the second part of the sermon, the collapse. You see, in the shepherds, we saw a compelling glimpse into the kingdom of God and how that kingdom was inaugurated through the shepherds' receipt and response to the gospel, through the hospitality and lordship of Jesus. But that's not the whole story. The shepherds' uplifting narrative doesn't make this a sentimental one. Their admission into the kingdom of God is truly revolutionary. That's because God's kingdom is the inverse of the societies that we build. In God's kingdom, the poor, the marginalized, the people without power or privilege are welcomed to the table of God. And so in that sense, we can also see how the shepherd's admission into the kingdom is itself a kind of judgment on the kingdoms of this world. Kingdoms who see their power begin to collapse. Let me see if I can point you in the direction I'm headed. When we read today's passage from Luke 2, you might have noticed a curious verse that kind of seems out of place thematically. That's verse 19. There Luke sort of pauses and notes that, quote, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. I believe that Luke is drawing the reader's attention back to Mary's prayer in Luke chapter 1. Known as the Magnificat, which is Latin for magnify, this prayer is given immediately after Mary's encounter with Gabriel, when Mary realizes that she will give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. The prayer contains some of the most theologically rich biblical prose in all of scripture. It's also one of four hymns that Luke uses in his infancy narrative. There are poetic declarations given by Zechariah in Luke 1, the angels in Luke 2, and later on in Simeon, with Simeon in Luke chapter 2. Notably, the Magnificat, though, is the only one of those four spoken by a woman, and it is also the longest set of words spoken by any woman in the entire New Testament. Perhaps that's why, even though I've grown up in the church, I can't recall ever hearing a single sermon that focused on exegeting her prayer. So for our shared benefit, I'd like to just read Mary's Magnificat in full. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown his strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. What a powerful, moving prayer. Mary links her son to the impoverished, cruel experience that she and virtually all of the Hebrew population experienced at that time. The Messiah that Mary anticipates is referred to as the Mighty One who topples rulers, scatters the proud, and sends the rich away empty-handed. He's also mindful of the lowly, exalts the humble, and fills the hungry with good things, and helps his servant Israel. Upon seeing the shepherds arrive at the invitation of angels, it's no surprise then that Mary would look at that and treasure and ponder all of these things as a kind of fulfillment of her prayer and praise. So let's just be clear then. Mary's words are not sentimental. 
German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer once described the Magnificat as, quote, the most passionate, wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary hymn ever sung. Bonhoeffer wasn't the only one to have reached that conclusion. Governments in Guatemala, India, and Argentina have in the past banned the Magnificat from being recited in public because of its galvanizing effect on the poor and marginalized. That response by those governments shouldn't surprise us. In contrast to the shepherds who relinquished their power and livelihood, their flocks, to find Jesus, the authorities of Mary's time responded to Jesus' arrival by weaponizing their power to protect their livelihoods. We see this in Herod's infanticide in Bethlehem, his successor's drunken murder of John the Baptist, and of course the unjust murder of Jesus himself. And yet, even in all that violence, note the futility of the violence and attempted control. Herod's cruelty in Bethlehem has no effect on preventing the end of his reign, which is barely a footnote in Luke's gospel. By deliberately disregarding Herod's violence, Luke uses the tools of narrative to show us how powers and authorities wither and fade under the shadow of the cross. Luke is showing us that neither Caesar in Rome, nor Herod in Jerusalem, nor Pilate as governor, nor all the presidents and premiers and executives and generals that have come after them will ever be king in any true sense. Kings of this world hustle and try to keep their thrones. They're panic-stricken, fearful of everything and everyone as a threat, completely unfamiliar with any methods besides force and violence and control, littering our human history with misery. These kings and their kingdoms fade. But Jesus' almost unnoticeable arrival brings the beginning of a kingdom that will never end. He's not robed in splendor, but swaddling clothes. He's not placed in the royal nursery, but in a manger, probably in an overcrowded home. And yet, note that he is the true king, ruling a kingdom which will have no end. Where he has cultivated, where they have cultivated fear, he brings joy. Where they, kings, have cultivated oppression, he brings justice. Where they have cultivated suffering and sorrow, he brings wholeness and delight. The advent of Jesus' kingdom means the collapse of theirs, and Mary cannot help but ponder it all. But there's something else going on deeper here as well. The author of this book and this passage, Luke, is himself a practicing doctor. He's gone about carefully selecting eyewitness accounts to shape the final form of his gospel and his subsequent book, the book of Acts. And in both of those books, his audience is the most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus is widely considered to be a person of significant Roman social and political status. And so what that means is both Luke and his audience are likely quite well off, beneficiaries of a society that's keen to respond to the poverty of Mary and shepherds with revulsion, not awe. And yet Luke's narrative deliberately confronts his status and the status of his readers. While religious and political leaders, the very people who should have understood Jesus' ministry, consistently fail to comprehend what Jesus is all about. The simpler, often marginalized, everyday people quickly grasp the gift of new life that Jesus offers them. That pattern of elevating the simple and humbling the proud must have been so unsettling to people like Luke and Theophilus. The signs of social misery and backcountry values were likely countercultural to them, if not even sinful in some sense, to Luke's upscale, prosperous audience. Beyond that, oppression was unlikely to be front of mind for Luke's readers. They would not have perceived a need for some kind of God-given 
universal peace. For them, the Roman military and market forces were seeing to that just fine. And in fact, most were probably in denial about how the empire's military force and violence supplied successful people with prosperity and tranquility. Would Luke's audience be able to see their imagination stimulated by the joy and mystery of this incarnation narrative? What would his first readers do with all these examples of marginalization, illegitimacy, social exclusion, and poverty at every turn in Luke's presentation? Well, to answer that question, I think we should probably first examine ourselves. Although we might prefer to see ourselves among the people who get it. I think some of us have to first acknowledge that we have far more in common with the social situation of Luke and his well-to-do audience than we do with Mary and the shepherds. We may, like Luke and his audience, feel disconnected from an urgent imperative for justice because we've been insulated from the shock of injustice. And unlike the shepherds, who relinquish their power and livelihood, we may, like Herod, be tempted to use whatever power or influence we have obtained to preserve our livelihood and our comfort, even when we know that doing so comes at the expense of others. Don't be quick to answer these questions dismissively. Luke is setting up this whole narrative to challenge a particular audience for a particular reason, and we would be foolish to quickly consider that challenge conveniently inapplicable to our lives. There's a lot more that we could say in response to this challenge, and I can't speak for you, only myself and my shortcomings in this regard. But allow me to say this to all of us. Jesus Christ is Lord, and that's not a matter of your opinion or mine. Okay, here, here's what I mean. When Jesus is described by the angels to the shepherds back in Luke 2, the angels announce Jesus' titles in rapid succession. Savior, Christ, and Lord. These terms are deeply political, and they carry political consequences. They're a declaration that Jesus is the king, and that anyone or anything else claiming that title, anything pretending to be a power or authority in this world, is a deceiver, a usurper destined for destruction, empty of life, completely vacuous. So when we get weak-limbed and say things like, I believe Jesus is Lord, but I mean, it's just a matter of my personal opinion, we're speaking utter nonsense. The statement, Jesus is Lord, is a declaration of loyalty, and it's also a declaration of what's true. The church is supposed to be a community of people that stand together as a kind of political alternative to every nation, witnessing to the kind of social life that's possible for those who follow King Jesus and are shaped by his story, not the story of the world. The main task of the church is political in that sense, not because it is adhered to a particular party or a platform or a politician. No, that's thinking of things in terms of American politics. It's political because it's going about the business of forming people who see clearly the cost of discipleship in their life and then are still willing to pay that price. That is, after all, why Jesus refers to his rule and reign as a kingdom that's not of this world. It's a kingdom that calls us to question every expenditure of our lives. And that's why we must never reduce the living, demanding, all-consuming reality of Jesus' lordship over the world to a mere matter of our opinion. And that leads us to the third and final section of this sermon, which is the choice. The choice between the way of the cross and the way of the powers. Jesus' welcoming of the Bethlehem shepherds into the kingdom of God, and then Mary's pondering of their role in the Messiah's work, 
places us as the audience at a fork in the road. We have to choose between the violent ways of the powers exhibited by Herod or the peaceful ways of the cross exhibited by the shepherds. This is the very temptation that Satan lay before Jesus in the wilderness. It cuts to the heart of what it means to follow a crucified Messiah in a world ruled by violence. First, let's talk about the way of the powers. In scripture, this word powers refers to supernatural forces that wage war against God and his kingdom. While the world is described in the Bible as the handiwork of God and the object of his affection, it is also used to describe an evil regime that has invaded and taken up residence in that once perfect creation. That world does not welcome its creator or his people because it's now been saturated with hostile supernatural powers and principalities that are coordinated by the devil himself. This is why John's gospel refers to Satan as the prince of this world, and Paul describes him even more shockingly as the god of this world. This enemy and these powers form an empire of cruelty, envy, violence, falsehood, greed, and desolation. They use deception, temptation, and everyday experiences to shape our imaginations and affections away from God. They bring chaos down like rain, sow injustice like seeds, and infect us all with fear. And while these powers can never separate us from God's love, they contend against God's followers all the same. They will remain a terrible enemy until the very end, when the Bible says that death is the last enemy that shall be destroyed. This is the present evil world to which Paul says we must never be conformed and against which we stand as more than conquerors. Now that may all sound very sinister and in your face, but the reality is much more insidious. It's much more beneath the surface much more difficult to detect. And that's why it's been so profoundly impactful in our communities. The lure of power to just go and get stuff done can catch any one of us up. Jesus himself is familiar with this temptation. He heard it before in the wilderness. When Satan approaches Jesus in the desert at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and tempts him to consume a little food, demand angels prevent his injury, and lay claim over the whole world, Satan's strategy wasn't about getting Jesus to pursue something other than being the Messiah. No, Satan's aim was to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Satan's aim was to get him to accomplish his messianic goals through shows of divine power and spectacular triumph, not through sacrifice and death. Jesus encounters the same temptation again in the Gospel of Mark and Matthew, where Peter confronts Jesus after the Messiah anticipates his rejection and murder at the hands of the religious authorities. Again, it isn't that Peter doesn't want Jesus to be the Messiah. He's objecting to the way Jesus is going about being the Messiah. Peter wants a king full of power, one who will walk into Jerusalem and drive out Israel's enemies in a triumphant display of power. But Jesus rebukes Peter in drastic fashion, linking Peter's words back to Satan's wilderness temptation. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In both temptations, Satan makes it plain that he is opposed to the cross and to a cross-shaped Messiah. Consistent with the larger theme in Luke we have previously discussed, where the powerful are laid low and the weak exalted, Jesus' rebuke of Satan's temptation to convenience and power calls into question our own idolatries. Whereas we might see power and prestige and wealth as levers that we can pull or water that we can channel a certain way, Luke would show us that they are threats, perhaps even satanic temptations. Allow me to illustrate. 
this year I've had the joy of rediscovering C.S. Lewis's famous fantasy series, The Chronicles of Narnia. One chilly Friday morning, my three-year-old son Martin and I sat down while we read The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. By the end of the day, we had finished the book cover to cover. Meeting the Pevensey kids, Mr. Tumnus, the Beavers, and of course, Aslan the Mighty Lion was an imagination-igniting experience for Martin. And as we've read more books, uh, the Narnia world has really provided all kinds of opportunities to talk about good and evil, sacrifice and love, and the author of that whole story, God himself. I've told Martin on more than one occasion that I am enjoying these books even more now with him than I did when I was a kid and discovered the stories for the first time. I've been moved by many of the powerful symbols and ideas contained in these stories, which still have much to say to us today. One example that struck me in particular is one that relates to one of Narnia's chief villains, the White Witch, Jadis, who, during the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, has conquered Narnia's free people for a century and established a cold, cruel regime where it is always winter, but never Christmas. In the Narnian tales, the witch stands against Aslan, the story's Jesus figure, and nearly conquers Narnia once and for all before meeting her defeat. In the very next book, some Narnians seek to resurrect the White Witch through dark sorcery. Why would they do that? Simple. They want to use her power. The Narnians have tried to rely on Aslan, but he hasn't shown up the way they wanted him to. They're running out of food, soldiers, and morale. Eventually, the exhausted Narnians turn treasonous and suggest calling on the White Witch for her ancient power. They hope to use the White Witch to defeat their enemies. And here's one particularly compelling part of the debate that occurs. In any way, Nicobrick the Dwarf continued, what became of the kings and their reign? They faded too. But it was very different with the White Witch, wasn't it? They say she ruled for a hundred years. A hundred years of winter. Now there's power if you like. There's something practical. And I say, if you can't help my people, I'll go to someone who will. Family, this is what is often referred to as a Faustian bargain. When someone trades something of supreme moral and spiritual importance, such as our values or our soul, for some worldly or material benefit, such as knowledge, riches, or power, Seems applicable today, doesn't it? The temptation of the white witch is the same temptation we face today. It's the temptation that you and I see power as a means to an end, even when power almost always becomes the end in and of itself and consumes us. When we ask questions like, how else is God going to spread the gospel? Or how else will I protect my family? Or how else will I be satisfied? Or how else can I right that wrong? We are revealing our captivity to the well-worn ways powers have taught us about how to resolve our problems. We're showing that we prefer to get stuff done rather than doing the gritty, hard work of telling the truth to ourselves and one another. Each of those how-else questions often stem from fears, fears that can be traced back to lies and habits and imaginations that have been shaped by the powers. We have to be honest about this. We all have picked up well-worn methods of responding to crises in ways that borrow from the powers and their ultimately self-destructive ways. We may not be as tenacious and cruel as Herod, but we act out of much the same fear, and in so doing, fail to live into the reality of God's kingdom. So long as we are tempted by our fears and our needs and our own self-preservation, we will be easy targets for the powers. 
we have to remember Jesus' teaching. What does it profit a man, he says, if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? That leads us to the other way, the way of the cross. It is in contrast to the wicked ways of the powers. There, scripture presents a compelling vision of the kingdom of God. This kingdom is so radically different than the one that poisons the world around us. It is the one where the last are first, the poor are blessed, and the meek inherit the earth. Citizens of this kingdom embody this kind of self-emptying righteousness by embracing acts of shalom, confession, repentance, generosity, hospitality, reconciliation, and other creative and costly displays and means of disadvantaging ourselves to advantage our neighbors. We associate with the lowly, abstain from vengeance, and overcome evil with good. We choose peace when threatened by the sword, blessings when cursed, and love toward anyone we might consider our enemy. We don't demand our rights at the expense of our neighbor's welfare. We willingly relinquish them, emptying ourselves in the likeness of our Savior, descending rather than elevating ourselves, finding our lives by losing them. This kind of kingdom inevitably leads to people who are in solidarity with those we once considered far off, especially those most weighed down by the world's brokenness. In some, citizens of this kingdom are a people shaped by the cross. That is why Jesus is the rightful king of this kingdom. If any man be my disciple, Jesus taught, let that person forsake all, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus is the Messiah who emptied himself, who descended from heaven, who took on the form of a servant, who washed his betrayer's feet, who was pierced for our transgressions, who pled for the forgiveness of his murderers, and who healed us by his wounds. Jesus' willing death made a complete mockery of sin and the powers. And one day, Jesus is going to return to make all things new. Allow me, if I can, to return back to Narnia just one more time. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, one of the four Pevensey kids, an especially whiny kid named Edmund, actually betrays his siblings and conspires with the White Witch we were talking about before, just so he can become king. Edmund's plot fails, and over the course of the story, he begins to realize the error of his ways as he suffers under the witch's cruelty. Eventually, the great lion Aslan heads up a rescue operation and recovers Edmund. But it isn't long before the witch marches to Aslan's camp with a claim on Edmund's life. Citing the deep magic that serves as the kind of moral order of Narnia, the witch states that every traitor belongs to her. She then points to Edmund and declares that his life is forfeit to me. His blood, she says, is my property. Surprisingly, Aslan never refutes the queen's claims. He recognizes that there is a moral order holding Narnia together, one that can't be waved aside so easily. Aslan quietly negotiates with the witch for Edmund's life, secretly offering his own in exchange. The witch gladly accepts, and later that evening, the great lion slinks away to the stone table, a large altar on a hill, surrounded by the witch and her minions. That night, Aslan is mocked, tortured, and eventually killed in Edmund's place by the witch herself, satisfying the deep magic that she cited and paving the way to Narnia's defeat and subjugation. As you may have guessed, things don't actually quite turn out that way. After Edmund's two sisters discover the site of Aslan's death, the stone table he's killed on mysteriously cracks in two, and Aslan emerges resurrected. The girls are overjoyed, but they don't understand what's happened. 
So Aslan explains to them. Though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge only goes back to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked back a little further, into the stillness and darkness before time itself began, she would have read that there is a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim has committed no treachery and is killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack, and even death itself will turn backwards. In Lewis' story, the magic of pure self-sacrificial love is deeper and older even than the deep magic of violent retributive justice. It breaks the stone table, destroys the evil witch's hold on Edmund, and resurrects Aslan to lead the Narnians in a victorious battle which liberates his country, transforms Edmund, and enthrones the children as the rightful rulers of Narnia. Remember those how else questions from before? How else questions don't lead us to the kind of choice that Aslan makes. His decision is rooted in an understanding that the way things just are isn't the way things must always be. It's a decision which illustrates the marvelous true power found in the self-emptying love of Jesus. And it shows that while both violence and love are powerful, they are not equally powerful. Self-emptying love is much older, much deeper, and the one thing that can bring the dead to life. If any man wants to be my follower, Jesus says, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it benefit a person if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Family, when we walk the way of the powers, we follow the well-tread, spacious, sand-covered path to destruction, the wide path. We reinforce the same vicious cycles of death that feed the powers and their plots. But when we choose the other way, the narrow, thorn-covered, cross-shaped path, we will find true life. It's when God's people have been transformed by the life-giving, self-emptying love of Christ, and when we have committed to carrying our crosses, and when our commitment has produced solidarity with the suffering, that is when our light will shine like the sunrise, says the prophet Isaiah, and our restoration will quickly arrive. So today, family, my final challenge to you is this. Allow Advent this year to be more than just a means for rekindling sentimentalism and nostalgia. Let us all consider how we, in our homes, with our roommates and spouses and kids, can see this season as an opportunity to detox from the wicked ways of the powers and refresh ourselves in the life-giving ways of the cross. If you're not sure where to begin, I suggest starting with Romans 12 where Paul explains in very practical terms what it means for his readers to offer their bodies as living sacrifices. Look at what he says here. Love must be free of hypocrisy. Detest what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Endure in suffering. Persist in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And don't be wise in your own eyes. Never repay evil for evil to anyone. 
Respect what is right in the sight of all people, and if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Beloved, never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will reap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This, this is the cross-shaped faith. There's nothing particularly sentimental about blessing your persecutors, extending hospitality to strangers, weeping with those who weep, and relinquishing opportunities for vengeance. And yet that is precisely what we are called to do as Christians. And in so doing, we overcome evil with good. If we're honest, this vision can sound impossible. And yet in Christ, there is a new possibility among us, rooted in God's love and God's suffering power. Power from God's love can break vicious cycles. We've seen them broken in Jesus, and even occasionally we've seen them broken in our own lives. We've been promised that one day these cycles will be broken once and for all. And we know that Christmas is the reminder that God keeps his promises. Professor Harawas, that critic of sentimental Christian faith, when asked what the antidote to sentimental faith was, he answered, tell the truth. What's the truth? The way of the cross, not the way of power. Jesus is Lord, Mac family, and Caesar is not. And that's not just my opinion. Join me in prayer. Father, in a world where we are tempted to get what's ours, to take care of ourselves first, to obtain influence and prestige, you call us to overcome evil with good. You call us to empty ourselves to fill others. You call us to carry our crosses, deny ourselves, and follow you. During this time of Advent and waiting for your return, guide us away from sentimental religion and stir within us a commitment to cross-shaped living. Help us to be a people of hospitality, of healing, of humility, and of hope. Amen. God bless family.